Uh, so we're in really part four of a series regarding our church's role in Nepal. Um, and it's, uh, it's called Why There? The Commission and Nepal. And you've got to help me out and you've got to get online and you've got to listen to the last uh, three set, uh, studies. And one of them is actually just the Nepal team sharing about our trip. And then there's two of this series, um, Why There? The Commission and Nepal. And uh, because I don't have time to go through everything else uh, to recap you, um, you got to be able to, to recap your own selves. So let me just share a few stories from the field with our uh, friends, the Footstool Project. Um, our main contact with the Footstool Project, Jack, he's been here. He's shared with our church. He's poured out to us and, and mentored us. But he's a guy that's just uh, an example of just at the slightest impression of the Lord's call, he drops whatever he's doing and he goes and does what the Lord's calling him to do. And it's a, it's a lesson in being faithful in those little things of obedience and the Lord will, will make you ruler over much and he'll bless that and increase that. And uh, one of the stories is Jack was on a train going through India uh, in the middle of the night. And uh, you guys know how big India is, right? Like bigger than Texas. And uh, in the middle of the night, uh, senses the Lord say, jump off the train right now. Who does that, you know? Uh, and so he takes his trekking pack, throws it off the train, jumps off the train, and uh, train moves on. It's the middle of the night. He's in the middle of India. Like, you know, what do I do now? And the Lord says, just go towards that light over there. And so he walks like all night long and follows this light. And this light takes him into uh, an Indian village. And as he gets to the village, there's a man waiting on the outside of it who says, um, I knew you were coming. He says, a man in white appeared to me and said that a Westerner was going to come and tell me how to know my creator and how to be forgiven of my sins. And, uh, and so Jack told him about Jesus. And that village is now a village transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, in another instance, Jack is trekking through India with a friend, and they're going up on the uh, eastern side to go into Nepal, but I believe it's Bhutan, um, that's, that's another small country right there that, that India splices between, and, um, and it's a closed nation. And uh, they walk past a trail that goes through these guard towers into Bhutan, but they're veering left, and they're going to head towards Nepal. And the Holy Spirit says, Go through that guard tower and, and get into Bhutan. And so uh, Jack tells his friend, like, I'm the Lord saying, go in here. And his friend says, well, I'll hold your pack for you, but I'm not going with you. And Jack begins to go through the uh, checkpoint, security checkpoint, and he is, he's accosted or he's stopped, and then the machine guns are pointed at him, and everyone's yelling from behind the sandbags, like, stop, stop, stop. And he just keeps walking, keeps walking. He's able to walk through the checkpoint, walk through all the guards and all the machine guns, and he walks to the first village he comes to, and there's a man standing outside who said, a man in white appeared to me, who said that you're going to show us how to know our creator and how to forgive us of our sins. Is that not incredible? Now, there's a man that we have gotten to know. And let me just uh, hop on down just a little ways or a long ways. Uh, and his name is Gilson. Now, Gilson is on the left, 
was the father of the was the son of the up and coming uh, lama of the region, a Tibetan Buddhist lama or spiritual leader uh, there up in the Rasua district, uh, and his father was being groomed by like the top spiritual Tibetan monk in the Himalayas. And they had cattle, uh, and they would, uh, Gilsong with his mother would go and help move the cattle along the Himalaya slopes to help them graze. And he was about nine years old when he sat down to rest while the cattle were lowing or the cattle were grazing. And, uh, and as he sat down to rest, he went into a trance. And he basically had two shadow men come to him in his, in his vision and say, we're going to take you, uh, you need to come with us. And so he follows these two dark, scary shadow men through all sorts of lands of, spiritual lands of darkness and through beautiful lands until he comes into this gorgeous land where there is the Buddha sitting beneath a tree. And the Buddha says, uh, I'm going to give you a series of visions and a series of instructions. You need to do everything that I say exactly as I tell you for the next three years. And during that time, I'm going to reveal you, to you who the, the chief God is that you need to worship. And so uh, it was a few days before he snapped out of this trance. His parents had found him and taken him down to the, the hut. And uh, in their little home, they uh, nursed him back to basically life again. And uh, throughout, the, he told his folks, and they said, well, we need to be listening, you know, we need to hear. And, and he was given a language to write down everything that he had heard of, just exactly as he was told by this vision who was supposedly the Buddha. Now, hear me out. I know it's getting weird, and you're like, what is going on? Because you should. <laughs> We've taught you to do that. Um, and over the time, as vision after vision would happen, he was told to do different things. When he woke up of, from his, his trance, he was told to do different things that were going to be signs and wonders and miracles for his family and his village to know that whatever he was hearing, it was truth and it was right. Even things like each little family has a special like pot. It's kind of like this heirloom that's passed down generation after generation. And he was supposed to take an absolutely dead twig and put it in a pot and it would bud much like Aaron's rod. And over time, that, that dead twig began to bud and to blossom. Um, among many other signs and wonders. But time after time, vision after vision, every single night for three years, Gilsung would go and he would see what supposedly was the Buddha and the Buddha would tell him, okay, now you've been worshiping this God. Stop that. Let's move to this God. I'm going to show you why you should stop worshiping this God and stop worshiping this God. All the way for three years, night after night, until finally there he is and says, you've been worshiping me. And I'm telling you tonight, you need to stop worshiping me and you need to worship a man named Yesu because he is the God of all gods. He is the chief. He's the only God. He's the only one worthy of worship. So from this night on, you stop worshiping me and you worship Yesu. And some men are going to come and they are going to teach you how to know me and how to serve me and how to love me. Meanwhile, some guys from the Footstool Project uh, with this team uh, are traveling through Nepal. They get lost and they take the wrong trail and they end up in Gilson's uh, village. And, uh, and they don't know anything special. They're lost. They went the wrong way. And Gilsong meets them and says, 
hey, I've been told that you're going to come and that you're going to teach me how to know Yesu and how to follow him and how to be a servant of his. And so it's so wonderful to be going to Nepal and to be meeting people whose stories like this come right out of the book of Acts. Will you stand with me as we read Acts chapter 10 together? Now we have um, personal booklets given to us by Gilsong that tell the whole story. Uh, we've printed them in the past and we've given them out. And, uh, and if you'd like to read the whole little booklet that he wrote of his testimony, uh, come talk to us. We can get that to you. In Acts chapter 10, there, were, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming and saying to him, Cornelius, when he observed him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? So he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. And when the angels who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from among those who waited on him continually. So when he had explained all these things to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became very hungry and wanted to eat. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven open and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. In it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And a voice spoke to him again a second time, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times, and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, while Peter wondered within himself what this vision which he'd seen meant, behold, the men who'd, seen, who'd been sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. While Peter thought about the vision, he, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I've sent them. Then Peter went down to the men who'd been sent to him from Cornelius and said, Yes, I'm he whom you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. Then he invited them in and lodged them. On the next day, Peter went away with them and some brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many who'd come together. Then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent. For I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. 
Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you've done well to come. Now therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who are oppressed by the devil. For God was with him, and we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with them after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. They were astonished as many, uh, all who read all who heard the word and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also for they heard them speak with the tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. So guys, go ahead and have a seat these are special Sundays where we're almost having more of a teaching, although we pray the Holy Spirit will bring, bring about the preaching with it, because we feel the Lord wants to bring clarity as to our role and our mission in this world, and specifically, why Nepal? Why are we going to these places that are so dark and so difficult? Uh, why don't we choose somewhere that's a little bit easier, a little bit closer, uh, and, uh, and you can understand as you listen to the testimonies from this last trip what I mean when I speak of difficulty, whether it's travel difficulties, uh, spiritual warfare difficulties, physical illness difficulties, uh, and among many other. And, uh, and so, very quick recap. We've been learning about the Great Commission, that Jesus, when he suffered and died and rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he commissioned and he gave us a mission to go to all the world and to preach the gospel to every nation, to every creature, and to teach them the things that Jesus had spoken. And in that period of time, we've discovered that among our population of the world, there in the blue, some of you could get up, I thought about, hey, call on this person and have them come, because they can teach you, they've heard it a billion times. Uh, but in our population of some 7.2 billion people, we have about 11,495 different nations. We're not talking sovereign nations. We're talking people groups. We're talking different cultures, different languages, different family, uh, even tribes. And uh, it's been estimated that there's about 11,000. Some different studies maybe go up to 16,000, depending on what their criteria are. But uh, that's about 11,500 people groups in the world. 
Among those people groups, about half of those are considered unreached. It's about 2.4 billion people who have less than 2% evangelical Christians who are making disciples in their nation, in their people group, in their tongue. So right now, 2,000 years after the Great Commission had been given to go to the world, that mission is about halfway done. Okay, uh, About 6,800 people groups are reached. And the studies are by people that just their life is doing math and studying and looking at these people groups. That's less, or that's more, um, the unreached are considered less than 2% evangelical Christians who are making disciples in their people group. And then half of that, so a quarter of the world's population, about 3,250 people groups are considered unengaged. And the unengaged have, there's no active evangelism, discipleship, or church planting vision within those population groups. Uh, Those primarily take place among the 1040 window. They're in Northern Africa and Central Asia, even over to uh, uh, Eastern, Southeast Asia. Uh, The 1040 window is a major mission field. Uh, These places are considered unreached or unengaged unreached because, man, these are places where the devil has a major foothold. There is incredibly demonic activity going on there. There's an incredible danger. Many of the current religions that are there are violent towards Christians. They persecute Christians. Uh, They suppress Christianity. They have closed borders so that the green reach nations can't get in there to preach the gospel. And some of them are open. And so we've been learning the last few weeks as a church how the Lord has given strategy uh, to get in there and to get to these unreached people groups and to preach the gospel. And so we've noticed uh, that uh, our first week studying this, that Nepal is there in the red, just above India, and it is uh, an unreached, uh, it, it is full of unreached people groups. As you look at uh, Guatemala, they're 90% Christians. USA, 78% Christians. And this is where we're even talking about just having a knowledge of the gospel. Uh, Nigeria, 48%. China's 5%. North Korea's 4%. Pakistan, 1.6%. Nepal, on the, on the study, is uh, 1.4%, depending upon the study. Uh, Nepal has 250 different people groups within its borders, and uh, only about eight of them have been reached Uh, with the gospel. And so that's 242 people groups who are still unreached uh, within Nepal. And so our purpose of this series partly is to look at what are the consequences, consequences, what are the implications of a little tiny nation like Nepal being so highly unreached. And part of it we've looked at uh, are that you've got uh, two major religions there. You've got Hinduism and Buddhism. And we're going to look at, this week, the Buddhism aspect. What does that do to the people and their hearts and their spiritual pursuits? Next week, we're going to look at what do Hinduism, Buddhism, animism, uh, what do these tribal religions, what do all of these people groups who are unreached with the gospel, how does that affect uh, society, uh, even just on a humanitarian level? We'll look at that um, next week. And so I know that's a lot, that's a tough recap to do. I mean, man, that's, there's, that's hours of, of study um, that we have done and could do, um, but we're not going to do it anymore because we have somewhat of an agenda here 
uh, today. And that is, as last week we looked at Hinduism, which is about, oh, 93% of Nepal's population. Um, today we're going to look at Buddhism. We're going to look at this, uh, this faith, this religion, that is about 9.4% of Nepal's population, significantly smaller than Hinduism there. Um, and as you would look at a Nepali map, the, the southern part of Nepal going down into India is just radically Hindu. Uh, and then once you get up into the foothills of the Himalaya mountains and up into the Himalayas where we go, that's where you begin to just see. Once we go to Badur where we often are, you start seeing less red dots on the forehead. You, less, you start seeing less Hindu influences and Hindu, and you start seeing more and more of the Buddhist and specifically where we are, the Tibetan Buddhist um, uh, practices. For centuries, Buddhism has been the dominant religion of the Eastern world. There's a rise of the Asian population in the United States, and so there's been tremendous impact on this country as well. Although I'm telling you that most of what we see in Hollywood Buddhism is nothing like what we see in the roots of where Buddhism comes from, which is actually the nation of Nepal. Presently, there are estimated 300 million Buddhists in the world, and 500,000 of them are within the United States. It remains the dominant religion in the state of Hawaii. And many prominent Americans are turning towards Buddhism, including former governor of California, Jerry Brown, Tina Turner, Phil Jackson, the coach of the Los Angeles Lakers, uh, Richard Gere, and Steven Seagal. These are all people that, that have an influence and people begin uh, to follow them. Uh, we have uh, the popularity of the Dalai Lama, as a prominent spiritual figure for thousands around the world. Um, many people even in Prineville have such, a, such an awe for the Dalai Lama. I was actually at the dollar store before we went to Nepal just buying little toys to hand out to the kids on the trail in Nepal. And uh, people in the store were overhearing that I was purchasing things to give out to these little kids. And so, you know, the, the lady at the cash register says, here's 10 bucks, go get 10 more things, you know, from the dollar store to give out. And then another man behind me in line said, what are you doing? And I told him and he said, uh, here's 20 bucks, it's, you know, uh, here, put that towards that. And then, uh, and then he leaves the store as I'm waiting for the, the, the clerks actually went and got the stuff for me and brought him back. Uh, as I'm waiting there, the man comes back in and says, hey, if you see the Dalai Lama, tell him that Pipe Fitters Union number, blah, 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 uh, has, you know, loves him and says, you know, and it's like, okay, I'm probably not going to see the Dalai Lama. Um, not sure what I'll tell him, <laughs> but, but, you know, here in Prineville, it's like, Dalai Lama, I'm going to come back in. I'm just going to make sure you know, like, Pipe Fitters Union number, we love that Dalai Lama. We love the, the Dalai Lama. But as we begin to look at uh, Buddhism, We'll do just uh, some, kind of, we're looking at Buddhism today, which is just a little different, but uh, don't let that stumble you. Um, you'll remember last week from our Hinduism study, uh, as you look over at the left, and actually, Josh, who, Jason, under the shelf right there, there's an old remote for an old projector, and it's got a laser pointer on it. You mind just running it up here to me? Because you guys see the other day there was a little kid out here with a laser pointer while we were sharing, and he was like, I actually needed a laser pointer. I was like, can I use that? Because I've actually got a... It was hilarious, actually. Um, anyways, over on the left, at the bottom, you see modern Hinduism, primarily in India. Thanks so much. Um, 
remember which button does the beep beep. Okay. Um, does this say Buddhism? Okay, we're really going to look at Buddhism. Um, but Hinduism, which we looked at last week, has its source, its beginning in um, what's called Vedism. Okay. And then Vedism uh, morphed into Brahmanism. Okay. Now, just a little bit of a uh, recap. I'm not going to pay with my Apple ID. Uh, Vedism, about 1,000 BC, uh, this very uh, sacrificial type religion. You've got sky, go- sky gods, fire spirits, complex rituals, animal sacrifices. And as we studied last week, there were these scriptures that were given that aren't even really an authority in Hinduism, uh, but they were called Vedas. And so uh, Vedism would follow uh, the Vedas in all of the, the rituals and such. But that morphed into Brahmanism in about 600 BC, uh, where it became, it became more of like this, this like oneness with everything. It began that new age type uh, concepts. Um, you know, the philosophical questions of the unity, uh, unity of the universe where everything is Brahma. There's just this one universal soul. I am Brahma, you are Brahma. This iPhone is Brahma, the plant is Brahma. You know, it's just all are one. Um, man is a cucumber, but also man is a god. The god is a cucumber. The cucumber is a man. You know, okay, we're just, just got this, there's something in it. Just all kind of got to tap into that. Um, all is Brahma. Um, all men are trapped by this delusion that they exist outside the Brahma. Uh, each person must realize then and escape this delusion through meditation. Uh, the Brahmanism speaks of this rebirth, that whatever is left after death is rejoined with everything like a raindrop joining the sea. We'll talk later how this flows into Buddhism of the life force that's reborn, uh, not necessarily the I am reborn uh, Brahmanism began this idea of karma that both Hinduism and Buddhism has that really speaks of you do the good deeds or you do the bad deeds. That will determine what your rebirth is. The poor and the rich have brought it upon themselves based upon their good deeds that they did or the bad deeds in a past life, uh, whatever their life force really did in a past life. Um, no God is needed. Karma is inescapable, natural law. Um, But the question of it all, we saw with Hinduism, and we're going to see today with Buddhism, is how do I break out of uh, and escape this cycle? Um, Around that time, the founder of Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama, I know I'm butchering this, I'm Blake viewing it up right now, Gautama, um, who was also known the Pampered Prince, uh, but we know him as the Buddha, um, came on the scene. Now, it's not easy to give an accurate account historically of the life of Gautama since no biography was recorded until 500 years after his death. Man, I hope you're listening, school of ministry students, from what we learn about today. The history, you know, Buddha's, Buddha's history versus Jesus's history and where we get our scriptures. Um, come to equip. If you want to know what I'm talking about. Um, So there's not much of a biography recorded until 500 years after his death. Today, much of the Buddha's life story is clouded with myths and legend that arose even after his death. Um, Even the best histories of our day have several different and even contradictory accounts of Gautama's life. 
Siddhartha Gautama, does anyone know how to really say that? Gautama? Just so that I'll stop annoying you with butchering it. Gautama? Thank you. You're from San Francisco. You're cultured, right? You know it. Gautama. Okay. Forgive me. You're not from San Francisco. Okay. No. Uh, so Gautama, we'll just call him Buddha from now on, just so that I'm stumbling myself right now, was born approximately 560 BC in Lumbini, Nepal, northern India, southern Nepal. His father, Sudatana, was the ruler over a district near the Himalayas that today is the country of Nepal. His dad, Sudatana, sheltered his son from the outside world and confined him to the palace where he was surrounded with pleasures and wealth, thus the nickname, the Pampered Prince. Now, despite his father's efforts, Gautama one day saw... uh, Uh, was able to get out and was able to see the district surrounding his world. He saw the darker side of life. He saw what life was like on the outside of the palace walls, where he saw four things that changed his life. He saw an old man, a sick man, a dead man, and an ascetic. He was deeply distressed by the suffering that he saw, so he decided to leave the luxury of his palace life and to begin a quest to find the answer to pain and suffering. How can we resolve this problem of pain and human suffering? This began his six years of austerities. Because Gautama left his family and traveled the country seeking wisdom, he studied the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, the Brahmas. He studied under Brahmin priests, but he came disillusioned with the teachings of Hinduism. So he devoted his life to extreme asceticism in the jungle. And he soon concluded that asceticism did not lead to peace and self-realization, but merely weakened the mind and the body. So then he turned to a life of meditation. And it was there while he was in deep meditation under a fig tree known as the uh, Bodhi tree, meaning the tree of wisdom, Gautama experienced the highest degree of God consciousness called Nirvana. Gautama then became known as the Buddha, the enlightened one. He believed that he had found the answers to the questions of pain and suffering. And so now his message needed to be proclaimed throughout the world. As he began his teaching ministry, he gained a quick audience with the people of India since many had become disillusioned with Hinduism. So by the time of his death at the age of 80, Buddhism had become a major force in India. In, in India. Kind of works, actually. Can we get a copyright on that real quick? Uh, and so as we look at this expansion of Buddhism breaking out of Hinduism, uh, we're going to see it was at this point that uh, Buddha came on the scene and we have this explosion of early Buddhism. We're going to talk about the two different schools of thought, Hinayana school and the Mahayana school, uh, and then more what we are into uh, in the Himalayas in Nepal, this Tantra or Tantric Hinduism Uh, going over into Tantric Buddhism, Tibetan Shamanism, and Tibetan uh, Buddhism. And uh, let me click to a little bit of this. Um, 
Buddhism remained mostly in India and Nepal for three centuries until King Ashoka, who ruled India till about 232 BC, converted to Buddhism. He sent missionaries throughout the world and Buddhism spread to all of Asia. Even before its expansion, two distinct branches developed. Uh, there was a conservative school of thought and a liberal school of thought. And just like within Hinduism, these schools of thought are, are they're two different branches, but they almost seem part of absolutely separate uh, trees. Uh, the conservative school is labeled Theravada and became the dominant form of Buddhism in Southeast Asia, so it's called Southern Buddhism. Southern Buddhism has remained closer to the original form of Buddhism. This school follows the Pali Canon of Scripture, which although written centuries after Buddha's death, contains the most uh, accurate records of his teaching. The liberal school is Mayahana Buddhism, which traveled to the north into China, Japan, Korea, and Tibet, and is called Northern Buddhism. As it spreads north, it adopts and incorporates beliefs and practices from the local religions of those lands. So there's a blending happening. And so these two branches of Buddhism became very different. A couple of differences are Theravada Buddhism sees Buddha as a man, even though Buddha never claimed to be deity, but rather a way shower. But Mahana Buddhism, however, worships Buddha as a manifestation of the divine Buddha essence. Since Buddha, uh, there have been many other manifestations or what are called bodhavistas. They've appeared. An example is in Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism, where they worship the spiritual leader, the Dalai Lama, as a bodhisattva. I'm butchering it. Bodhisattva. And so Theravada, this branch of Buddhism, adheres to the Pali Canon and its earliest teachings. These Mayahana, liberal school believers, believe that there's so many different manifestations of the Buddha, and so there are all sorts of different scriptural writings. Theravada teaches that each person must attain salvation through their own effort. Now, what is all of this about? This is all about things like this. Theravada teaches that each person must attain salvation through their own effort. This requires them to relinquish earthly desires and live a monastic life. So only a few who've chosen this lifestyle can eventually attain nirvana. Now, Mayayana teaches that salvation comes through the grace of the bodhisattvas, like the Dalai Lama, and so they may attain salvation. Theravada do not have any place for divine beings. The primary focus is on individuals attaining enlightenment, and a divine being or speculations of such only hinders that process. Therefore, there are several sects of that branch that are atheistic. Mayayana, on the other hand, has many diverse views of God. Since the branch is inclusive, it's adopted beliefs from various different religions. Many schools of thought here are pantheistic, multiple gods in their worldview. Others are animistic. Buddha is worshipped as a divine being. Some of these schools of thought pay homage to a particular bodhisattva sent to their people. Other schools have a mixture of gods that they worship. For example, Japanese Buddhism blends with Shintoism and includes the worship of the Shinto gods with the teachings and worships of Buddha. 
Notice the blending. When speaking with the Buddhists, it's important to understand what branch of Buddhism they're talking about. The two branches are dramatically different. Even with Mahayana Buddhism, the sects can be as different as Theravada is to Mahayana. So, uh, all that being said, wrong button. These were little slides that were supposed to be happening there, but just weren't happening. Uh, About 500 AD, we had another type of blend begin to happen. And... um, Just look at a map real quick. Much of what I just read, you begin to see the geographical uh, advancement of Hinayana Buddhism and uh, Mah. You'll notice I'm saying it different every time. Yeah. Mahayana. You should have seen me at my desk studying. I'm like, okay, you got it. Mahayana, Hinayana. Mahayana, Hinayana. Ooh, we're getting it. Okay. Um, there we have... There we have her on the map there. Um, and yet there was not yet this tantra uh, that we see here uh, until a little bit later where it would be uh, much in the region where we are, Kathmandu and in the Himalayas. Um, and what we had there with the, the tantra or tantra uh, is very spiritual um, recognition of the different gods and demons and demigods. And it's, it's very aware of the spiritual realm. So this is where we're at. We're in Kathmandu, we're in Nepal, we're in the Himalayas, we're, where there's tons of Hindus down in Kathmandu. We go to the Pashpati, which is like the Hindu spot in the world. Um, you know, you're cremated there, you're reincarnated because, because of your cremation there, all this. But we also have Buddhism, just like a, a mile away. We've got the Bodha and we've got uh, their worship and their karmic rituals. And, uh, and in between, there's a blending of that Hinduism and, uh, and the Buddhism in what's uh, this tantra, where they begin the manipulation of the different spirits and the different gods through basically becoming uh, possessed by these demons um, and taking them upon themselves, working magic spells or mantras, being parts of wild rituals, uh, if you read my article in the uh, Central Oregonian this week and heard our testimony from Nepal where we went to Demon Lake and you go and you worship the demons and you see them, they manifest, uh, it's terrifying, people are terrified, uh, they draw and are a part of these mystic diagrams, uh, you go into the Buddhist temples there and they have spirit traps that look like box kites and uh, these people hang these box kite looking things hoping to catch uh, a demon. And then they hope to take that demon upon themselves and into themselves so that they'll have power over other demons because it terrifies them. They're like, the only way I can beat this demon is with a bigger demon. Get that demon on me. Take care of that demon. And uh, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, and so that's a little bit of what we have um, where we are going uh, in uh, Kathmandu right around here uh, and going up into the, these two different... My shakes are showing you exactly where we're going. Right around this area. Um, and, uh, and so you have this different school of thought that is called Tantric Buddhism. And that's uh, very, you know, they, you'll see as you go around pictures of demons, uh, demons that are ruling, demons that are to be worshipped, demons that are to be feared, homage is to be paid. And, uh, and so within that Tantric Tibetan Buddhism, 
you have these shamans, uh, or he who knows in the Siberian language. These are kind of like you know, your pastor mayor type figures. They're powerful central figures who are chosen by spirits. They are aware of the spiritual. We're so ignorant here in America because you know, we go home and we pop in our microwave food and then we sit down and we like brainwash ourselves, you know, all night till we crash on our bed and then we wake up and like way to totally expose yourself to other things in life, you know? Um, and so, you know, but these are people that like, they go and they sit in their hut and then they go out to the lake where like the spirit manifested. And it's like this, I mean, they're seeing this stuff. Uh, and so you've got guys that are like chosen by spirits uh, through uh, descending birds, spiritual torture or visions uh, interesting to hear Gilsong's testimony, right, of, of his, how the Lord uses the cultures and, what's, and he begins to speak to them of the gospel through even things that they kind of expect might happen. And so the typical vision is one of death, dismemberment, resurrection in a new body with new powers. These guys are healing the sick. They control the weather, restore balance between humans and spirits. They foretell the future. They use magic, sacrifice to am, uh, animals. Uh, animals, sacrifice animals, and even sacrifice uh, humans. And so that just gives you just a little bit of an idea of, you know, here's this unreached area. Like people have not been going and taking the gospel up into the foothills of the Himalayas and up into these mountains, and there's reasons why. There's very dark, demonic, tantric, mantras, shamans, um, and then as you get even into the the monks and uh, the persecution against Christians, which we'll talk about more uh, next week. Uh, it can be a dangerous place to go share the gospel, as even the Footstool Project has a testimony recently of, and, um, and to even live the gospel as a new Christian. Now, the main question that Buddha sought to answer was, why is there pain and suffering? Now, we're getting into this, okay, so what's their way of salvation? What is all this going towards for them? This way of salvation is, why is there pain and suffering, and how can we get rid of it? How can we deal with that problem? Buddha's belief in reincarnation, the belief that after death, one returns to earthly life in a higher or lower form of life, according to his good or bad deeds, prompted a second question that also needed to be answered how does one break this rebirth cycle? So he came up starting off with what are called the four noble truths. And that is that all is suffering. And when I say all is suffering, all is suffering. And you might say, well, what about marriage? Need I say more? Okay, no, but that's like the thought is like, all is suffering. So you get married, it's like, woo, but guess what, bro? It's going to end in suffering. And even if you have a great marriage, she's going to die and that's going to be suffering. Or she's going to die. You know, this is that. Kids having kids suffering. This, all. They didn't teach it to me this way. Um, but all is suffering. There's fear. There's hunger. There's loneliness. There's grief. There's illness. And you can just keep writing the list. Because it's all suffering. Then we have suffering comes from any form of desire. And so longing for independent, attachment, emotion. So think of how that ties into society, to life, 
to relationship with children, to wanting to rescue people, to wanting to save people, to wanting to sell people. I mean, everything is connected to this in their culture. And so suffering comes from any kind of desire. Let's go save the people that are in sex trafficking. I don't want to do that. I don't want to desire anything. I don't know. I don't want to desire Like literally. Just whatever happens, happens. What can you do? Because I can't get involved here. Because it will lead to more suffering for who? Me. Okay? Um, this desire binds men to rebirth. Another noble truth. Suffering is destroyed by eliminating desire. Okay? So... The more you eliminate any kind of desire in your life, family ties, family bonds, um, anything, uh, you're finally going to be able to start getting to that point where uh, you'll eventually, and we'll talk about this later, get to nirvana. Fourth noble truth, desire is eliminated by following the eightfold path. Okay, um, what are the eightfold paths? <laughs> I'm glad you asked me that. I have an alarm on my phone telling me it's time to be quiet. I just told it is time for him to be quiet. Um, so you've got the eightfold path, okay, that will help you live out these four noble truths, extinguishing all desire by following the eightfold path. Step one is the right view. One must accept the four noble truths. Step number two is the right resolve. One must renounce all desires and any thoughts like lust, bitterness, cruelty, and must harm no living creature. Step three is the right speech. One must speak only truth. There can be no lying, slander, or vain talk. Step four is the right behavior. One must abstain from sexual immorality, stealing, and all killing. Step five is the right occupation. One must work in an occupation that benefits others but harms no one. Step six is the right effort. One must seek to eliminate any evil qualities within and prevent any new ones from arising. One should seek to attain good and moral qualities and develop those already possessed. Seek to grow into maturity and perfection until universal love is attained. Step seven is the right contemplation. One must be observant, contemplative, and free from death and sorrow. And the eighth one, because you're on the edge of your seats, I know, is right meditation. Right meditation, after freeing oneself of all desires and evil, a person must concentrate his effort in meditation so that he can overcome any sensation of pleasure or pain and enter a state of transcending consciousness and attain to a state of perfection. Buddhists believe that through self-effort, one can attain the eternal state of nirvana. In Buddhism, one path to nirvana relies on the effort and discipline of the individual. Now, uh, nirvana means to basically be, it's not like you go to heaven, that's not nirvana. Nirvana is to basically be snuffed out, to cease to exist, to be blown out like a candle is essentially what it means. Because even to be in a place where you're like a god or a demigod, they're suffering in that. And then you'll, you'll, at the end of that life, you'll kick back down and you'll be kicked back down. You'll be kicked back down and this and this, but they're suffering in it all. And so we just got to get to that point through meditation and following all of this where after all these lives and all of this, like we just, it's done. 
Contrast that with Jesus, who taught that our goal is not a state of non-conscious being, but an eternal relationship with God. There is nothing anyone can do to earn a right relationship with God. Instead, we must receive the gift of his favor and his grace upon us. Receive the sacrificial death of his son. Jesus Christ restores us to relationship with our creator. And it's in his presence that there is fullness of joy and there is no more suffering. And every tear will be wiped away from our eye. Three important concepts in understanding Buddhism are karma, samsara, and nirvana. Karma refers to a law of cause and effects in a person's life. Reaping what you've sown. Buddhists believe that every person must go through a process of birth and rebirth until he reaches that state in nirvana. According to the law of karma, let me quote, You are what you are and you do what you do as a result of what you were and did in a previous incarnation, which in turn was the inevitable outcome of what you were and did in still earlier incarnation. For a Buddhist, what one will be like in the next life depends on one's actions in this present life. Unlike Hindus, Buddha believed that a person can break the rebirth cycle no matter what class he was born into. And, uh, and so, for instance, when we go to the Bodha, which is the main worship hub for Buddhism, and you've got a guy who's a paralytic and he's a beggar and he's dragging his mangled legs on the ground with flip-flops on his feet, just hoping to get a handout, um, the Buddhists just look at that and like, you did that to yourself, man. I've got no compassion for you. You did this through all of this and lives and lives and lives, and so like, I'm not even going to look at you. Because you have done this. This is a result of past incarnations in your life. We're not that different sometimes, are we? You did this on yourself, so deal with it yourself. Now, with the karma concept, um, you've got people trying to get karma going so that good things, good things, good things, so when I die, I'm reincarnated in a, in a better way, in a better position. So I'm going to do these things so that my karma gets better, and it's not just like help an old lady across the road. Okay, it's, you've seen the, um, you've seen the prayer flags, right? You've seen the beautiful colored prayer flags that um, even Subtle Lake Christian Camp has hanging up. I don't think they know really what's going on there. But the uh, prayer flags aren't just beautiful, you know, use car lot banners, you know. These are, these are, they have the Buddhist scriptures written on them. And they believe that if I hang up this prayer flag and the longer I hang it up, that the wind will blow the scriptures and these will be my prayers going up and this will work out karma for my good. So you walk around the Himalayas in Nepal and there's just pine trees with just these flags and lines and lines of flags wrapped around and and just, all right. Isn't that how we pray sometimes, by the way? Like, I don't got time to pray today, but like, if I could just put it on a loop on a recorder, that would be awesome. We were walking last year uh, with the 2016 team, and we came upon this, what looked like some kind of a wheat grinder or something, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a creek. And what it had was a little wheel in the river that, as the river went through, and that was so like, hey, I don't got time to pray today, or I got time, I don't have enough time, uh, so this wheel will do my praying for me. Okay, uh, or you've got something other that's a familiar sight. Um, you have these giant prayer bells. 
And you go to the Boda, and even Sean remembers, we were at one house that was a creepy horror movie house in the middle of the Himalayas that we stayed at, and we knew there were demons there, we were praying, we could sense it, and the giant room in the house had a bell, like, about this size, you know, just walk around it, and this, this is working good karma for me, so hopefully my next life will be in a better place than this one, so I can end this cycle of suffering. You've got little bells all along. So the Boda is that big white stupa that you've seen in previous pictures. And you see down where people are walking in a circle. On the right of the circle, there's these little windows. There are about, I don't know, 10 little bells per window. And the people just walk around and you have to do it in a, in a clockwise manner. Walk, 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 walk. Gotta get my karma up. Gotta get. I gotta do this. I gotta do this. I gotta, you know. I gotta work it out myself. Or you have these really sweet little deals that the kids love. I got my little. I don't got time to walk around the prayer wheel today, but I, I'll take this with me where I go, and I'm working up good karma, spitting up good karma. Okay, so that's a little bit of what you see uh, there in uh, in Kathmandu uh, with this. Now, here we have. Um, Let's see, where am I going? That's what you're wondering. That's what I'm wondering too. Where am I going with all this? Well, to pause a little bit on the, the karma idea. Okay, time's out. Um, we have here what is called the wheel of life or the tonka. Okay? Uh, it's kind of the story of your reincarnation. And the tonka essentially tells, let me zoom in. Well, you might notice, okay, uh, so there's a demon, this is kind of like the main demon who is the demon who is the judge of the dead. So he holds this wheel of life and he, in most pictures he's got his uh, claws really dug in there and even on others he's got his feet wrapped around the bottom end and he's holding this. And so basically he is the judge who sends you to various areas um, within uh, your different reincarnated states, okay? Uh, as you zoom in, you have your central different um, lusts and passions that will lead you towards uh, bad karma. Depending upon what you do with that, you go either to the black with the ox and the you know uh, the skinny dude and this and that, uh, and and that takes you onto this path of bad karma. If you did something good, you go into the white area where uh, you'll hopefully be taken to a land of of um, of release and start working your way up to. Um, up in here, which is this land of basically uh, nirvana or a state of nothingness. And, uh, and so what you have, and this is, man, I couldn't even find one like you see in the main worship center in Kathmandu that is just graphic. And there's actually Kama Sutra pictures like all over. It's just like, who draws that stuff? <laughs> but um, so here we have uh, the different forms of reincarnation. And if you're bad, you may actually even be taken to a place where you're a demigod. And you'd think that would be good, but there's all sorts of fighting and you end up dying and suffering. You may be reincarnated as some sort of an animal. Uh, and then depending on what kind of animal you are, of course. Uh, and then you get sent to uh, all different kinds of hells and torture chambers. Uh, up here shows the white freezing cold hells where you um, have all kinds of uh, just, you know, frostbite and all kinds of, just the worst of the worst of freezing. And then down here, the fires of hell as well. Here you go to uh, be reincarnated as a hungry ghost 
that you just go your whole life and you, you go around through the deserts and you try to find um, a morsel of bread or water and when you do it only makes the pain and suffering worse and then there's these gods that you serve that maybe will kick you back to maybe this one that's a little better or this. Um, the best place to be actually in all of this for the Buddhist is to be uh, in this state of being a man where um, you're free from the distractions of being a god uh, because even being reincarnated as a god or a demigod you um, you get distracted with being a god and you're like hey, this is kind of nice and oh well pleasure and you get into the pleasure which leads to all sorts of suffering and stuff and boom you get kicked back down again okay so even if you're up here as a demigod it doesn't necessarily mean good best place to be is you're sitting here under the feet of the dalai lama right here okay and then um and then hopefully after lives and lives and lives and lives uh you are uh, hitting the state of being snuffed out. Uh, one of the Buddhists who actually drew the wheel of life got saved, and he ended up drawing a witnessing tool for Christians that is a wheel of life, and it's the story um, of Jesus, where uh, we see the story that deals with pain and suffering. As Jesus came down, was born as a man, lived the life, wowed his instructors as a little kid, uh, came and was baptized by John the Baptist, would teach the people about love and peace and the kingdom of God. Uh, he would heal the sick. And as you're telling people this, they're like, he healed the sick? Yeah, and he rose the dead? Yeah, this is very important to them. Here we have Jesus. He's an Asian Jesus, by the way. Uh, he's casting out demons, and they light up. Like, casting out demons? Like, someone has the power over these demons? that We've, we've got a problem with demons. Uh, here he is uh, at the Last Supper. He's being betrayed. He's standing before Pontius Pilate. He's dying on the cross. Uh, he's willingly laying down his life to die on the cross. It's very important to say uh, he rises from the dead. People see him as he's risen from the dead. And then he ascends into heaven. This is very important. As he does, he crushes the demon. Right? And he ascends up into heaven and he tells the disciples, go and tell others about this as, uh, as you see that Jesus has dealt with the problem of suffering. And so as we go through Nepal, we take the tonka with us. And we, uh, we tell these people the story of Jesus and how he has dealt with that main problem in question of uh, suffering. Dustin got to share with that guy who looks a little terrified on the right, but you know, I'm sure you did your best. <laughs> now, as we really are closing up, in contrast to the idea of reincarnation, peop, uh, the Bible teaches us in Hebrews 9.27 that man is destined to die one time. And after that, he will face judgment. That's a major diverging point between Buddhism and Christianity is that the Bible refuses the idea of reincarnation. To be absent from the body is to be in presence of the Lord. The Bible also teaches us that in the eternal state we are fully conscious and glorified individuals whose relationship with God comes to its perfect maturity. Now, quick little contrast between Buddha and Jesus as we close. Buddha did not claim to be divine. Theravada remains true to its teaching that he was just a man. The idea that he was divine was developed by the Mahayana Buddhism 700 years after his death. Therefore, Northern Buddhism teaches that there have been other manifestations of the Buddha or Bahastavas, and some believe Jesus to be one of them as well. However, Jesus did not claim to be one of many manifestations of God. He claimed to be 
the creator of the universe, the son of God, speaking of his deity, the Jews knew son of God means you're claiming to be God. This teaching was not the creation of Jesus' followers, but a principle Jesus taught from the beginning of his ministry. In fact, the salvation that he preached was dependent on the understanding of his divine nature. Secondly, Buddha claimed to be a way shower. He showed the way to nirvana. But it was up to each follower to find his own path. Jesus did not come to be a way shower. He came to be the way and claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. While Buddhism teaches that salvation comes through Buddha's teachings, Jesus taught that salvation is found in him. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was saying that he alone is the one who can give eternal life because he's the source of truth in life. And not only did he make that way possible, he promised to forever be with us and to empower us to live a life that pleases him. The third thing is that Buddha taught that the way to eliminate suffering and attain enlightenment is to eliminate all desire. Christ taught that one should not eliminate all desire, but be able to have the right desire. He stated, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus taught us that we should desire to know him above all others. And that the, tr- the mark of a true Christian is to love God and to love people. And to lay down your life for others. That is the true way to greatness. Fourth, Buddha performed no miracles in his lifetime. But Christ affirmed his claims to be God through the miracles he performed. He demonstrated authority over every realm of creation. The spiritual realm, nature, sickness, and death. These miracles confirmed his claims that he was more than a good teacher. But he was actually God in the flesh. Finally, Buddha is buried in a grave in Kusinara at the foot of the Himalaya mountains. You can go visit where his bones rest. But I've been to Jerusalem and I've been in an empty tomb that Jesus is alive. He has conquered sin and conquered the grave. His death paid the price for our sin And his resurrection is the vindication that everything he said about being absolute deity is truth and right on. His resurrection from the grave makes it possible for us to now live in the power of the risen Jesus and to also have the hope of eternal life. We live in a resurrection power now and one day we too will be resurrected. A man who I got most of my research in this was a former Buddhist. And he says, after I've done comparative studies, I came to realize Buddha was a great teacher who lived a noble life, but Christ is the unique revelation of God who is to be worshiped as our eternal Lord and Savior. Let's pray.